Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, you guys ready to study the word today? Uh, today is going to be uh, an interesting uh, turn because we're going through Isaiah 13 through 14. And today's chapter, Isaiah 13, it starts a series of oracles against the nations. And what an oracle is, is it's essentially um, an announcement of future events. It is um, our God saying through the prophet Isaiah, I want you to tell these things to these people because this is what's gonna happen. That's an oracle. This, I have decided this and this is going to happen. So go ahead and let them know that's what an oracle is. And what Isaiah is announcing through the next, almost up through like chapter 23 or 24, the oracles that he's announcing is that the world, the nations of the world, are under God's judgment. So before we go any further and talk about why this is important and why we're spending a time as a church going through Isaiah, we're, we're doing this because we decided as a church we're gonna read through the book of Isaiah verse by verse, but, but there's a, a deeper application to why we would study the oracles of the nations. But before I get to that, I wanna show you just a quick refresher map to help you understand where we are uh, and where we're gonna be talking about things. So the map that you see up here is one that I showed when we kicked off the Isaiah message series. Um, it shows the Middle East region. Some of these areas might be familiar to you down here. This is Egypt. If you looked at a modern day map, this would be Egypt. Israel is that little slice of land right up there. Um, you've got Saudi Arabia here. You've got Iraq. You've got um, Iran. But this, even though this is the geographic region hasn't changed much, um, the names have changed over time. And so when we started off Isaiah, one of the primary threats, one of the primary issues that Isaiah was dealing with was this guy named King Ahaz of Judah and how he was gonna reconcile um, the Assyrian army coming to conquer Judah. Now we're starting to get into some other names of nations now and that's why I'm throwing this map up. Because at the time of Isaiah, what you had was Judah in the south of Israel as its own nation with its own king you had Assyria as the superpower in the region. Assyria was a superpower for almost like 200 years, from around 900 BC to about 700 BC. You've got them as the superpower, but you've also got this other area. At this time, it's just a city, and it's called Babylon. Babylon uh, has a long history as a city. You probably remember it all the way back from the book of Genesis as uh, the place where these people gathered together and decided to build this tower called the Tower of Babel. This area has a rich history in this region as being an epicenter for um, cultural thoughts, cultural advancement, technological advancement, um, medicinal advancement. This area, this city at the time of Assyria, Babylon, was known in the region as um, what we would think of as um, kind of like the biggest metropolitan city where all of the large cultural things were happening. 
Babylon thought about themselves very similar to like, I imagine like New York City thinks about themselves. (laughs) I wasn't trying to jab at New York City, but if the boot fits, that was wrong, I should not have said that. Uh, So at this time where we're studying today in Isaiah, Babylon is not a nation, it's just a city, and it resides within the nation of Assyria. So Babylon is just a capital within the nation of Assyria. Uh, There is another nation on the other side of the mountains over here, um, and I label it Medes and Persians, but that's much, much later. Right now it's just the Medes and the Persians are just beyond that. They align later on. We'll talk about that as we get through Isaiah 13. But beyond that mountain range, you can kind of think of like the Medes and the Persians. But the thing I really want you to think about today is that um, Babylon was not a nation yet. It wouldn't be its own nation for almost another 200 years from the point that Isaiah is preaching, but it was a city and it was a cultural epicenter for a lot of advancement and they thought very highly of themselves. They thought so highly of themselves that um, regularly, even though they were a part of Assyria, they thought they should have been their own thing. They regularly thought that they could have just kind of broken off in a sense like we really, we, we think better than the rest of the nation. Um, we really should be our own thing. Um, so that's kind of the mindset I want you to think as we get into Isaiah pronouncing the oracles of judgment over the nations because the big one we're gonna be wrestling with today is Babylon, which is interesting because when Isaiah gives the oracle against Babylon, it's not a nation, it's just a city. And it seems odd the way he does it, but Isaiah is not bound by time because what he's doing is he's prophesying things that are going to take place 200 years in the future. Uh, And it centers around this city and this region, but it's even bigger than that. And that brings us to why we're studying it. Why are we studying Isaiah speaking the oracles against the nation? Well, the first big reason would would be because what we're witnessing here is the God of a tiny little nation is claiming sovereignty over the entire world. And for us as Christians in modern day to think about the idea that our God is the God of the entire world, that is, seems like a no brainer. We kind of, we get that. And the mind of um, uh, an Israelite at the time of Isaiah, they would have seen God's sovereignty over the entire world as well. But you have to remember that communication isn't what it was, is not, it's not what it was as it is today. And so people are not sharing ideas as regularly. And so there was a sense at this time period that whatever you had going on in your specific region was like what was happening in the entire world. And it was like the greatest, coolest thing ever. And so you have all these other nations, these regions who are thinking to themselves like, like our God is the God. Like Marduk, he's it. There are no other gods, it's just him. Baal. Besides, there are, there are no other gods besides Baal. He's the best, he's the, he's the, he's the chief, he's the, he's the one at the top. And so for the prophet of a tiny little nation, Judah, who was being attacked by three different nations to rise up, Isaiah as the prophet, and to declare the God of my people is over the God of your people would be like saying the God of Havana, Florida is over New York City. Hey. (laughs) The God of Tallahassee 
is over California. Now, I'm not saying that Tallahassee has a God or Havana has a God. I'm trying to use geography to help frame out what Isaiah is saying when he starts giving oracles against nations. The boldness that was required for the prophet to stand up and say, look, you may not see this as how the world works, but this is how the world works. The God of the universe is over your nation. And it is a nation because he allows it to be a nation. And the moment he no longer allows it to be a nation, it will no longer be a nation. That's how he works. To proclaim that boldly puts an emphasis on accountability for the people to give some kind of answer or account to the God who is over them. And that's one of the first reasons why we're studying this. Because it frames our understanding that the entire world whether they acknowledge that God exists or not, is under the rule and reign of our God. He is sovereign over the entire world, whether people choose to acknowledge that he even exists or not. That's the first reason. The second reason why it's important to study the oracles is because the nations that some acknowledge he exists, some don't acknowledge that he exists, they're under God's judgment. The whole world is under his authority and he is now declaring that the whole world is under judgment. And because the whole world is under judgment, Isaiah is telling the people, don't join them. Don't join them, one, because if you join the nations that are under judgment, then you are gonna start receiving the wrath of God that is coming this way towards the nations. Imagine, or remember Lot's wife. God punished Sodom and Gomorrah and she just couldn't, she, she left the city, but the city never really left her and she couldn't help but turn around and she received the same punishment as the city even though she had left the city. And so God, through the prophet Isaiah, is saying, look, the whole nation is under the control of the Lord and the Lord is saying that the world is under judgment. So don't align yourself with the world because you'll start receiving that judgment, but also don't align yourself with the world because many of, these, many of these nations are gonna start receiving the judgment of the Lord and they're gonna turn their back on their foreign gods and they're gonna join me. So don't go join them when they're gonna end up over here anyway. That's the second reason why we're studying the oracles. But the third reason why we're studying the oracles is because if God is judging the nations for sin, and that's his posture, that he's judging the nations for sin and he takes it very seriously, then we also should be taking holiness seriously. And this is the big one I wanna rest a little bit of time on today. Because the next few chapters, not just 13 and 14, but all the way up through the 20s, they're filled with graphic depictions of war. Really, really violent depictions of what the Lord is gonna do to sin on this earth. And if the Lord spends 10 chapters walking through how he's going to deal with sin and pride and arrogance and the language is such just filled with war and violence, then I am convinced that we need to treat sin in our own lives with the same kind of zeal. If this is how our God deals with this garbage, then this is how we deal with this garbage. But we always start at home. 
We don't start dealing with the garbage in somebody else's life. That's the point of what Jesus said about getting the speck out of your own eye. This concept that we are watching our God deal harshly with sin, he does not make friends with it. If that's what he does, then we do the same and we start in our own lives. Our zeal for dealing with sin should match his zeal for dealing with sin. So I see the oracles against the nations as a call to personal holiness. That's why we're studying it. And I may be alone in this, um, but I'm convinced that there is a, an urgency for us in the day that we live to treat holiness seriously. That for, for many years, we collectively as a people have been more emphasis, put more emphasis on this aspect of God's character and this aspect of God's character. And I understand us wanting to emphasize specific things within God's character that ministers to culture, but not at the expense of other parts of his character. And what we regularly do is we emphasize on this and we de-emphasize this. And one of the things that we have de-emphasized is personal holiness. Taking sin seriously. Getting the garbage that runs your life out of your life. Asking the Lord to change your desires. Asking the Lord to take away the nonsense in your life that constantly distracts you from the mission of building his kingdom. And so for me, when I read the oracles, when I read the New Testament, my overwhelming takeaway is that the Bible is calling the people of God to personal holiness. If you want a New Testament verse, I'd go to 1 Peter 4, 3 through 7. The summary of it is that God is judging the world for pride, arrogance, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. That behavior is completely setting itself against God and God is coming to judge that behavior harshly. So why do we think that as the people of God that we could participate it in, in any capacity? Judgment of God is coming against these things. So therefore, and this is what Peter is arguing, if God is judging these things, then therefore be set apart from that. Be holy, live self-controlled and sober-minded lives, and above all, love one another. So, as we go through these oracles today, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. Lord, have I aligned myself with things that you're gonna judge? Lord, have I made alliances that keep me from needing to trust you? And have I neglected to walk in holiness? Am I immature in my sanctification? Those are the things I want us to wrestle with today as we get into the oracles against the nation. All right, Isaiah 13, let's start in verse one. Isaiah 13, one. It says the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a bare hill raise a signal, cry aloud to them and wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. 
I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult as on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together, the Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. In Hebrew, that word whole land means the whole earth. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor and they will look aghast at one another and their faces will be aflame. Let's pause there. So verse one is telling us that what we're about to read is an oracle against Babylon, but Babylon is not mentioned one time in the first eight verses. In fact, it's not referenced again in the next, uh, up until verse 17. So if this is an oracle against the nation of Babylon, even though the nation has not existed yet, it's still just a city within Assyria, but Isaiah is not calling out Babylon and not calling out geographic regions, what is he saying? He's saying that God is declaring war on Babylon in the spiritual sense of Babylon and also in the city physical sense of Babylon. God has declared war on Babylon in the heart sense, in the culture sense of what it is to be Babylon, and he's declaring war on the manifestation of the heart behind that in the actual city that is Babylon. And as I mentioned when I showed you the map, up to this point Babylon was a location, but it was under the control of Assyria. And even though it was a legitimate um, surrounding place uh, where people actually lived, the culture that represented those people was marked by pride and arrogance. And so what Isaiah is saying is that I'm declaring war on the attitude of Babylon. Whether it resides in an actual physical location of a nation that may be named Babylon or may be named something else, or whether it resides inside the heart of a people, I will not stand for that attitude in the heart of people, that attitude being pride and arrogance. I'm declaring war on it. And when I declare war on it, I'm gonna raise a signal of war up on a bare hill so that everybody can see it for miles and miles and miles. No one will wonder what the Lord thinks about nations and people that live with pride and arrogance. God is gonna summon his earthly and his heavenly warriors to go to war against this attitude. Now the ultimate fulfillment of this battle that Isaiah is talking about the Lord mustering together, the ultimate fulfillment of this is Jesus 
crushing the spirit of Babylon at his return. We are told throughout the New Testament that our blessed hope is that sometime in the future, Jesus is gonna crack the sky and he's gonna return and he's going to punish the wicked, raise the dead, and establish his literal physical kingdom here on earth in a physical, literal body. That's what the promise that Paul tells us is, is in the New Testament. And what we're reading here is Isaiah looking forward way into the future and seeing what is God's ultimate fulfillment plan for all the wickedness on the earth that is manifested in the city and the people of Babylon. It's gonna be that they're gonna be completely crushed. Jesus is gonna crush these people at his return. But there's also an immediate fulfillment like much prophecy in the Old Testament. You've got what's gonna happen way in the future, but to get those people in the future ready for what's gonna happen, I'm gonna give you something right now so that you see it. So that as it starts happening, you're gonna see, well, if the Lord does this now, I, I, ooh, I better get some things straight because if he does this now in this small scale, then on the globe, I don't want any part of that. And then also people who live past that that are over here, they're like, oh, oh man, do you see what he did in the past? If he's gonna do that in that small scale, and, he's, and now this is the global, I need to take him seriously. That's why prophecy works this way. There's a foretelling and a foretelling. There's a, there's a shadow and an image. There's a, the ultimate fulfillment is Jesus returning, but the immediate fulfillment is the actual destruction of Babylon that is gonna take place in 539 BC. And Isaiah covers both of these events, the ultimate fulfillment at Jesus' return and the immediate fulfillment in the destruction of the city of Babylon. But the funny thing is that the immediate uh, fulfillment from where Isaiah is standing is not for another 200 years. <laughs> so he's, he breaks up the fulfillment of this prophecy, this oracle, with the word behold. So this Hebrew word behold, essentially what he's doing is he's saying, okay, in verses one through eight, this is what the Lord is gonna do. He's gonna muster his troops and he's going to war against Babylon. And now I'm gonna explain to you the two ways he's gonna do it and I'm gonna split it up with this word behold. Behold, he's gonna do it on a global scale and then behold, he's gonna do it on the specific nation. He splits this up verses nine through 16 and then 17 through 22. So let's go to nine through 16. Isaiah 13, nine, it says behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil. We're not just talking about Babylon, we're talking about the heart of Babylon in the entire world. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place and the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee into his own land. And whoever is found will be thrust through and whoever is caught will fall by the sword and their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes and their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. 
Behold, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Great for those who have been exploited by Babylon and terrible for Babylon. Because the Lord is mustering his heavens, the angels, to go to war against this, but he's also calling other nations to execute judgment on Babylon. And when all is said and done, he's gonna chase down and root out Babylon in every corner of the earth, where it resides in the smallest corners of the human heart. He's gonna punish the wicked and put the evil into an early grave. He's gonna hunt down sin and he's gonna destroy the very things that help give birth to it. That's how I read verse 16. When we talk about infants being dashed, houses being plundered, wives being ravished, we're talking about the family unit, the structure that people on earth create in order to further their own personal beliefs and agendas. And what God is saying through the prophet is that pride and arrogance that has been not just cultivated in the human heart, but cultivated in systems that create offspring of more pride and more arrogance, the Lord is gonna dash that crap into pieces. He will not stand for that stuff. So the question is, if this is how God will handle sin and wickedness, then how do we handle sin and wickedness? If we serve a God who mounts an army against sin, do we mount an army against sin? If we serve a God that goes to great lengths to pull down wickedness in any form and put it to death, do we? Isaiah is painting a picture of the life of the people of God and how seriously they are supposed to take the things that God calls wickedness. And what he is saying is that that stuff does not get to have a nice, pretty little um, uh, decoration on your mantle in your house. You don't get to decorate your home with the things of the Lord when people come in and say, but, but what about that thing over there? Don't worry about that. That's on display for other purposes. That's not how the people of God arrange their lives. And what God is saying through the prophet is that he takes it seriously over the whole earth and you can drill that seriousness down into the human heart. He does not think that your sin is cute. It is a big deal to him, and it is why he had to send his son to die for you. That thing that you think is cute and not a big deal murdered the son of God. His blood was shed for that thing that you don't think is a big deal. It is a monumental deal, and if you don't get it in check, it is the kind of thing that can root itself deep down in your heart and convince you that because you attend church and everything in your religious life looks good, but this one thing that's never really been surrendered puts you before a holy God, and he looks at you and says, hey, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you, and you say, no, but Lord, Lord, 
Imagine getting into an argument with the father about whether he knows you or not. You don't want any part of that, so take your sin seriously now. And I'm not just talking about the things that we all as church agree are not good for your soul and your body. I'm talking about the stuff that's hidden that most people don't know about. I'm talking about that attitude you walk around with that tells you that you are always the smartest person in the room and it is a gift to this church or this organization that you are here because if you weren't here, oh, things would fall apart. That is pride and that is arrogance and the Lord dashes that stuff against the rocks. And we should take it seriously. Romans 8.13 tells us, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. My argument for using that verse would be that there is a level of zeal and vigilance that is required to live holy and follow the Holy Spirit. That your sanctification, your holiness, that's the same word in the New Testament. New Testament. Agiosmos, the idea of holiness, sanctification, same thing. And we live with this concept that like, my sanctification is just something that will happen. I'll just, I'll just, it's not there, so I just, I need to live more time and it'll just happen. That's not how sanctification works. Your holiness and your sanctification grows as you, as Paul says in Romans, you put to death the deeds of the body. That's how you live by the Spirit, by putting to death the deeds of the body, by not letting your mouth speak that regular gossip, that juicy gossip, that desire you have to be in the know with the people who are in the know, when you tell yourself, no, I'm not even gonna go to that organization. I'm not gonna text these people. I'm gonna get out of this group. I'm gonna remove these people from my lives because I can't allow that thing to just kind of sit like a pretty decoration that's not a big deal. If I don't take that seriously, it will eat me alive and it will be my identity and and I will no longer be a child of God. I will be a person who always is in the middle of all of the juicy gossip and information. That's my identity. And the Lord is saying, what identity do you want? Do you want to be the know-it-all or do you want to be my son? Because you can't be both. So you have to choose. And that choosing to put to death your desire to be a know-it-all, the one to have the last word, the one who you just love putting your wife in, in their place because you always got the right thing to say at the right time. That stuff, it's got to be put into the grave if you want to follow the Lord and walk in holiness. You can't do both. Go to verse 17. We start 17 with this word, behold. So he's switching. Behold, he's mounting an army against this Babylon. Behold, he's mounting an army against this representation on earth of Babylon. And the two feed each other. This arrogant attitude came from these people. And this attitude feeds these people. It's this vicious cycle, verse 17. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children and Babylon the glory of kingdoms. 
The splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there and their houses will be full of howling creatures. The ostriches will dwell there. That's weird. That's weird. It's weird. It's a weird, it's a word Hebrew word. It could be owls, but we got ostriches, so we're going to roll with it. And there, wild goats will dance. That Hebrew word can be translated as wild goats, but it can also be translated as demons. Demons are going to dance there. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant places. Its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. That's so fascinating. Because what he's talking about is not going to happen for another 200 years. But from where the Lord is standing, no, no, it's close at hand. It's coming. It's right around the corner. Yeah, around the corner, like 200 years from now, it's right around the corner. That should frame out the way that we think about the Lord's return, huh? It should frame out the way that we think about things like our country and the world that we live in and how young America actually is in the scope of all the things throughout history that have taken place. So in 17 through 22, God comes forward and speaks an oracle against not just the spirit of Babylon, but of the nation, the city that will become the nation. And what he's saying is, because God came for the spirit of Babylon, our guarantee is that he will come for Babylon. And because he came for Babylon, we can guarantee that he will come for all of it. Now Isaiah, as I said, is looking forward 200 years and we're looking back on it. And what we're looking back on, Isaiah, he's looking forward at this event and he references the Medes. So he, he, he's seeing this thing taking place, but it's not way in the future. Now, we're in 2021, so we're 2,500 years past this thing, and we're looking back on it. And as we look back on it and we know our history, what happened was, at some point in the future, right around 612, the Babylonians found an ally in the Medes and said, we're kind of tired of being a city of the Assyrians. We want to be our own thing. Will you help us overthrow our oppressor and become our own nation? And the Medes are like, yeah, of course. So the Medes and the Persians gather together, and they, excuse me, the Medes and the Babylonians gather together, and they overthrow the Assyrians, and the Assyrians are gone. Isaiah called that one too. Now the Babylonians are in power, and the Babylonians ultimately come, and they uh, take the people of Judah and in Jerusalem, into captivity, they burn the city and they take them off into captivity, but they're released and they return. And while they're in captivity, there's this event that is chronicled in uh, Daniel chapter five, where the Persians decide to ally with the Medes and then they come in and overthrow the Babylonians. And that event is what the prophet is saying. So just a quick history lesson, when the Babylonians overthrow the Assyrians and they're gone, Babylonians are the chief dudes in town, they come down and they ransack Judah, 
They take all the people into slavery and they bring them back to Babylon and they make them live in exile for 70 years. And they burn the temple to the ground and they ruin all of the furniture and everything. And, and the people of Israel, the nation itself, it's gone, it's gone. And then they're living in exile in Babylon. And that account is retold in the book of Daniel. And right around Daniel 5, you're probably familiar with this, you get the story of this Babylonian king sitting at this massive dinner and all of a sudden a hand appears during the dinner and starts writing something on the wall. And the king's like, guys, uh, do you see this? Everyone at the party's like, yeah, I see it. And they're trying to find like who, what is this, what is this language? I can't read this. It is weird that a hand is writing on the wall, yes, but also what does it say? And they're looking and no one can interpret and they pull in this Judean slave, and he comes in and he's like, oh yeah, I know that, that's Hebrew. That's my language. And it says that you've been weighed and found wanting. And the interpretation of that is that uh, the Lord's gonna overthrow your kingdom. As a matter of fact, it's gonna happen tonight. The Persians and the Medes are right outside the gate and they're coming in to wipe you out tonight. Not for another 200 years, but Isaiah sees it and he tells them before they're even a thing, before they're even their own nation, God has already stirred up people to bring them low. But here's what's wild about it. That night when they come in and they uh, erase Babylon, the, the Babylonians and they take in all of the uh, Judean slaves, what happens to the city of Babylon? It disappears. Everybody in the city gets wiped and no one moves back in. And eventually sand and the desert starts piling up. And within 100, 200 years, the city's gone. And nobody on planet Earth knew where Babylon was again until 1811 when an archeologist started doing some excavations about 50 miles south of Baghdad and they came across the city and they're like, what is this? And they keep excavating and they realize this is a massive city. This city housed probably 200,000 people. This is Babylon. When God stirred up the Medes against the Babylonians, guess what happened to the Babylonians? They disappeared, and the only inhabitants, a, a city that housed 200,000 people, that's bigger than Tallahassee. A city bigger than Tallahassee that, was, that, that had the influence of a New York City is completely gone almost overnight, and it disappears for 2,000 years. The only where, where where people lived in palaces and castles, now it's just wild animals and demons and ostriches. <laughs> How does that happen? Well, it happens because of what Isaiah said at the beginning of the book. Our God is over the entire world and he has pronounced judgment on these folks because of their lifestyle. There's no repentance and there's no stopping the judgment. And it happened and there's historical record of it happening. So, God says he's gonna do it and he does it. And if God said he would do this and he did, we should take him seriously because if he also says that he's going to return 
and he's gonna judge Babylon in the hearts of people, then we better be sure that Babylon does not reside in our hearts. Amen? Go to verse one, chapter 14. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will, uh, will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves and they will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. Now I think again this ultimate fulfillment will come when the Lord returns, but the immediate return was specifically of the nation of Israel. So what Isaiah is saying, I'm going to speak judgment on Babylon and they're gonna disappear off the face of the earth, but a few things need to happen before that happens. And the things that need to happen are what I just described. God has purposes for Babylon in judging the people of God. So they're gonna go into exile, but it's not gonna be there forever. They're gonna return back to the land. And when you start returning back to the land, when the Lord has released you from your captivity, when you have served your punishment, because of the wickedness you allowed to live in your hearts, on your way home, I want you to sing a song of taunt to the king of Babylon. On your way home, with that old gristle beard because you've been living in captivity for 70 years. On the way home when all you've got to your name is a backpack because everything has been taken from you by the king of Babylon on your way home, while you're heading home, I want you to sing and mock the king of Babylon. Let's read that song. Verse three. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Oh, how the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They're breaking forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon are saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter, new, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol, hell, beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come, O king of Babylon. They've been waiting for you. They rouse up the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations and all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we, you have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to hell. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. <laughs> so here's the song that the people of God sing 
as they head home. Babylon, you were high and mighty. You thought very high of yourself. You elevated yourself above God, but your glory has been crushed. You are brought as low as hell itself. You thought you were amazing. You thought you were the greatest. You are nothing. At this point, you are nothing more than maggot food. This is a pretty good song of victory. (laughs) Maggot food. Worms for your covers. But it's not just a good song of taunt, it's also a great reminder. Don't join forces with people who will be maggot food. Don't create allies with people whose covers are going to be worms. Instead, make war against Babylon in your own heart because God is gonna judge the earth. And you don't wanna be on the other side of that judgment. Now, in verse 12, this language shifts. And historically, this section of scripture from 12 to 23 has traditionally been used as an understanding of this was Satan, the devil, falling from heaven. The problem is, that's not what Isaiah's talking about. He's talking about the king of Babylon here. But he is referencing another creature who elevated himself above God and was also cast down to a very low place. So while Isaiah is speaking to the king of Babylon in 3 through 23, he pulls in a parallel to help the people, the the reader, understand that in the same way that God is going to cast down Babylon and the king of Babylon, He's going to do it in a way that he did before with this other divine creature who elevated himself to a place of authority and tried to sit in the king's seat and got flicked down to earth to the lowliest of places. That is the devil. So 12 through 23 is not about the devil, but Isaiah is drawing on the story of him to reinforce in the taunt what is gonna happen to the king of Babylon. You follow? Okay, let's go to it, verse 12. This is how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. See, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. There was a divine creature that said that once. He said in verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who you see will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble and who shook the kingdoms? Now we're back talking to the, about the king of Babylon. Is this the guy who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let its prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave, like a loathed branch clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stone of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial. You're not gonna receive burial honors because you've destroyed your land, you have slain your people. 
and may the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. And I will take it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water. I will sweep it with a broom of destruction. We spend all of our time building these kingdoms, building these things that we think make such a difference and standing back and looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, I did that. And the Lord comes in with a broom and he sweeps it away. He sweeps away years of building your business because you did it for yourself and not for his glory. Because you allowed the spirit of Babylon to live inside you and convince you that you could, like another divine being, ascend to a seat that you don't belong in. And the Lord said, I've got a way of dealing with those folks. So we started, I'm gonna end here because now we're getting into an oracle of Assyria. I'll wrap those into next week because these are shorter oracles and they're covering all kinds of different regions. But I really wanted to focus in on Babylon today. We started today with three important points. First is that God is king over the whole earth. The second is that God is waging a war against sin, pride, and arrogance that resides in the whole earth. And the third point was that as God's people, we also should wage war against sin, pride, and arrogance. So as we close today, this is my one question. As we've now studied the vigilance that God uses to deal with sin and pride and arrogance in the representation of Babylon on the earth, do you believe these things? Do you believe that this is how God deals with sin? On a global scale and on a personal scale? And I'll push just a little further. Okay, you say you believe it. Do you live like you believe it? Because there's a difference between all of us agreeing that is true and those of us living like it is true. And I realize how difficult this kind of conversation can be in a room full of people who are in lots of different seasons of life. There is a thing that happens when you start having children <clears throat> it's almost like these people that you create look to you, at least when they're young, look to you like you have all of the answers in the world. It's not until later that they find out that that's a sham. But there is a small window where they feel like, man, you, you've, you've got the answers. Whatever you say is true. And I've noticed as a father that one of the things that that does inside of you as you're parenting these children is it creates inside of you this sense of like, well, if this is what they think, then this is what I have to be for them. And as a dad, it's really easy for us to live a life that even though we don't know the answers to the questions, and even though we haven't lived up to what the Lord expects of us, we can't let anyone know that. We can't let our kids see it. We can't let our wives see it. And so we continually live with this, this facade that says, I've got it figured out, and please don't come too close um, 
because if you do, then the whole thing will kind of fall apart. And what Isaiah is saying through the prophet is that it is okay, all of you, to go ahead and let that thing fall apart. It is okay that you don't have the answers. It is okay that you are not modeling every area of holiness that you should be modeling. What is more important than modeling perfection and holiness is modeling repentance. Now follow me here. The expectation from the New Testament is be holy like I am holy. All right, Lord, let's do this thing. 10 seconds later, I've already failed. What do I do with that? You've got kids, you've got people who are looking up to you and uh, you're in a leadership position or, or you're just ahead of a home. What do I do with the fact that I literally can't live three seconds without falling short of the mark? If I can't model holiness, then what can I model? Model repentance. Let your kids hear you say, I'm sorry, regularly. Let your kids hear you say, I love you. I'm proud of you. Because if you're not modeling the grace side of what we're supposed to be living, then what do you think they're going to do when they fail? They're gonna hide it just like you. And then none of us are making any progress and we're only allowing the dark places in our heart to cultivate the mold of Babylon. And we become pride and arrogance and we walk around thinking like everything we do works when none of it works. So the question when I say, do you believe these things, is not just, do you believe them because the Lord says it in Isaiah 13 and 14, and these things are true, and he's coming for this stuff, but do you believe it in a sense that when he's coming for this stuff, I don't want this stuff to be living in me. I don't want to be on the receiving end of the heavens, heavenly armies coming for me because I have allowed myself to live in such a way that I have projected something that is not true of who I am, Let's start working on being more transparent. And I'm only using the fathering uh, analogy to help the application process today because I am a dad and I understand what this is like. But this works itself out in lots of different ways. It works itself out from a grandparent's perspective, for, for a child's perspective, for a business owner's perspective, for somebody who's a student in school. There are 100 billion applications to this, but all of it stems to the same truth. And that is, I'm not gonna let Babylon live in my heart by pretending through pride and arrogance that I have walked some level of expertise that I do not currently hold to. Amen? So this is what I want. I want us to start working as a people and individually, as a church collectively and as a people, to stop tying ourselves to alliances to things that God is opposed to. Let's not ally ourselves with things that God is coming to judge. Two, start being vigilant about where Babylon lives inside of your own heart so that king can get off of that fake throne he's made. And three, make war with your sin. There's, um, there's an old Puritan preacher back from the 1600s named John Owens. He wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. And there's a quote in that book that says, summary, if you aren't killing sin, it is killing you. That you can't treat sin like it's 
a thing that's not trying to regularly advance and take more uh, kingdom. It is always trying to advance, and unless you're putting it to death, it's killing you. So make holiness your daily goal. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.